Um, so we're going to be concluding our uh, travel through the book of Jonah. We're going to be closing out chapters three and four. So if you can turn in your either uh, Bible, paper Bible or digital Bible to jo- uh, Jonah chapter three. Uh, we are going to be going uh, through the end of the series. It's called A Big Fish and a Second Chance. And we love that the Lord um, gives a God of second chances. Amen. Who's, who's on two million? Yeah. So that's definitely going to be the theme as we march uh, through the scripture today. Um, what's kind of interesting is that the book of Jonah is fantastic in this way. It's one of the most miserable books you can read, but it's also one of the most wonderful books. And the reason why I say that is because as we dive through chapters three and four, you're going to see, it's kind of interesting. Uh, most scholars believe that Jonah is the author of this book. What's fascinating about it is that how he ended it, because it ends on a cliffhanger. I don't know if you've read ahead before or read this book before. Chapter three is incredible. Chapter four is very much puts Jonah on blast. And you're going to see there's a passionate pursuit of the Lord for the people of Nineveh. But just as God is passionate about the people of Nineveh turning back to the Lord, God is equally passionate about Jonah. And that's super important. I I like to look at it this way. If uh, the Lord were to show up in your life and he were to say this, we need to have a deep conversation, would you be ready? Um, Some of you know my wife, Jackie. Uh, She's one of the coolest people ever met. I know I'm biased because I married her, but she's also super wise. I think that God brings people together uh, in a way that they complement each other, just like Adam was in in the Garden of Eden, and the Lord said, you need help. Like, sometimes you guys can read it. There's definitely a tone from the Lord. He's like, you need help, so I'm going to send you a helpmate. Like, you need help. Like, you need help. And so he's like, so we're going to bring Eve to come alongside you, and she was a, a perfect puzzle piece for Adam, right, to help him complete the task. That's how Jackie's been in my life. She's so great in helping me uh, see a lot of things. And so I just want to encourage you in this way, um, especially if you have a person in your life that you rely on for wisdom or just advice. Um, I like to think of Jackie as like the highest general of my counsel. I don't know if you watch medieval movies. I like period pieces. I like medieval movies. You ever see like in a scene where everybody's telling the king what to do in the middle of a battle? Like he's in the tent and they got a map in front of him. And everybody has their angle, right? Everybody's angling, well, I'll do this so I'll get the glory or I'll attack this way so that you don't get the glory, that kind of thing. But then finally the king's done talking and listening to everybody. He goes, he turns to his most trusted advisor, right? And he says, but what do you say? And then the general says, well, this is what I would do. And the king goes, good, that's what we're gonna do. Because I trust this person. I have a deep respect for this person. I have an awe and a reverence for what they have done in my life. I just wonder if that is how we move kind of like Jonah should have, but do we do that when the Lord shows up and says, hey, can we talk? Usually when my wife shows up and says, hey, can we talk? I go, oh, I didn't restart the dryer. Or I didn't take out the chicken. Or I know I, I know I did something that we need to talk about. But I, I know that I'm ready to hear because even though it's not something I want to hear, it's something I need to hear. And it's because of the position that my wife has in my life. Are you ready to open up your heart and your mind to the Lord if he shows up and says to you, hey, can we talk? There's, there, there's something that we need to talk about. There's a There's a deep change that needs to take place, and I only say this because I love you. I know you don't want to hear it, but you need to hear it. And that's really what the book of Jonah is. The book of Jonah is that particular place where there is a man who loves the Lord. He's actually doing what the Lord has asked him to do, but there's still a deep struggle between him and the Lord. There's still a lot of problems, and the problems are on Jonah's side. They're not on God's side. And you're going to see that played out through these next two chapters. So, 
Join me in verse 1 of chapter 3. It says, And then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim it to the message I give you. And I love this because this is a second time for a second chance. Let me just remind you where we came out of chapter 2. Remember, Jonah listened to the Lord. The Lord said, go to Nineveh, which is like the enemy of everybody in the area because Assyria was evil, right? They were like, just so you guys know, they, they gave the Taliban like a really good look. They, they made the Taliban look like choir boys. And so you can see why Jonah was like, I'm definitely not going there. Like, I don't want to witness to them. They don't deserve the Lord, but they're evil. And so he ran to Tarshish, right, which is Spain. So he left, he left Israel and, and went to Spain. But on the way, he got captured by a storm. The storm held the boat down, right? The sailors were like, wait, one of us messed up really bad. Jonah was like, it's clearly me. I'm not listening to the Lord. They tried to save him, but they couldn't. He said, you have to throw me overboard. It wasn't him trying to save them as much as he was trying to commit suicide. He was literally like, hey, if I go in the water and die, then I don't have to do what God asked me to do. It's a win-win. Lord said, not so fast, my friend, and sent a fish, right? And so the fish swallowed him up. And for three days, he was in the belly of that fish. And for three days, he had time to contemplate, why am I running? God, you are good. God, if you could just remember me, I am a sinner and I have failed you. If you would just forgive me. And the Lord met him in that well and said, you know what? I will remember you. Now, I don't know if you remember how chapter two, verse nine closes. He actually says, and I can't wait to get back to church. And I can't wait to start singing worship songs at Rachel's leading. And I can't wait to see everybody and have coffee in the lobby. It's going to be great. And then what does chapter three open with? Oh, by the way, you need to go back to Nineveh. I didn't ask you to go back to church. I'm going to pick up right where we left off. And why is that important? Because the Lord is not going to ignore what needs to be done. And you want that in your life. It's the Lord showing up in your life and going, hey, I know that you're really excited to get back from out of death, you know, out of the whale, but we have work to do and I'm not going to ignore it. I'm going to complete it. Look at verse three. So Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. And now Nineveh was a very large city and it took three days to go through it. And Jonah began at going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, what's incredible is you see that there's a prophecy. What does the prophecy say? Y'all are going to die in 40 days. That's it. That's the prophecy. You are going to face utter destruction because you're evil and that's it. Now, what's incredible is, spoiler alert, the Ninevites are going to respond and go, this is good. But how could God send such a person to capture the minds and the hearts of the most evil regime in the area, the superpower, by all intents and purposes? They'd be like, who's the Jewish God? Why would we have to worry about him? We're on a tear right now. We're leading in success. Well, that person would probably look like this. <laughs> this is the kind of guy that the Lord sent. So if you ever wonder, if you're the kind of guy that would capture the attention of sinners... Understand this, God sent somebody who just spent three days in the gastric juices being digested by an animal that could digest even bones. So if it could swallow up a whole fish and digest it, it would turn this guy bleach white. And so he's walking into this situation, and I know this is a little bit funny, but can you imagine from the side of the Ninevites, what are they getting out of this? What are they looking at? What do they perceive as the message of God? Now, what's amazing is how they respond. I want you to hear verse 5. The Ninevites believed Uncle Fester. 
No, what does it say? They believed God. For as fast as it was proclaimed and all of them from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. And when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. Now, we can just read that, and it just sounds like pure, like just submission to the Lord, but I want you to know there's a little bit more to that. The word that is in there that sat down in the dust, that word is even deeper than it means for a king to get off the throne and go down to the dirt. It's actually a sign of full submission. When someone were to go down in the dirt, it actually means they would say this, you win. Isn't that incredible? The, 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 the people that are on a tear right now, they are conquering nation after nation. In fact, Egypt, which is another superpower at the time, wants no business with them, doesn't want to tangle with them in the Middle East. And they go, you know what? When God spoke, the creator of heaven and earth spoke, he said, in 40 days, we're going to be destroyed. And what is their response? Immediately, they respond to the Lord and they go, everyone bow down in humility. Even the king of Assyria in the middle of the capital of Nineveh is getting down and going, you win. Lord, you spoke, you win. And now I want you to see how he responds after that. This is the king, verse seven. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink. But let them, or sorry, but let people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? I love this response. God may yet relent and with compassion turn from fierce anger so that we will not perish. That is an amazing verse from a group of people that don't really know God. Now, this is what Jonah feared, remember? He feared the idea that these people would hear from God and respond to God and God's compassion would flow, right? So this, what Jonah's worried about is actually taking place. But I want to let you know, look at how far the king takes it. Not only us, but the animals. The cows can't eat or drink. What did they do? What did they do wrong? But, the Lord, but you know what he's saying? He's like, everyone's going to be hurting. You know why? Because we're in a situation where we all are not going to move. We're not going to even eat or drink unless the Lord speaks. You know, have you ever been around animals when you haven't fed them? Yes. Have you ever been around livestock for an extended period of time? They're loud. And I think that the king was saying, you know what? This is going to just to serve in this particular way. We're all going to be wailing for more than food and water, but we'll be wailing for the word of the Lord. You know, it's a great reflection of the inward suffering and humility, not just to put on sackcloth, but to say this, I am not going to be able to live unless the Lord gives me the word to live. And that is a great thing that is on display. You know, it's, it's interesting because verse eight in the uh, English Standard Version would say it this way. But let man and beast be covered with sackcloth and let them call out mightily to God. You know, before the Assyrians uh, were in this particular position, if you were like, if we were watching a movie and you had scouts in the country, right? And they would see the Assyrians coming. They would come running back in and they would say, the mighty Assyrians are upon us. These mighty Assyrians would be mighty, right? They'd be mighty in influence. They'd be in mighty in power. They would be mighty in terror. But now what are they mighty in? Meekness and humility before the Lord. I think that's amazing that a moment that the Lord spoke, their first instinct was to get mighty in their lowliness before the Lord. 
When you pray to God, whatever your situation is, whether it's great or bad, whether it's awesome or terrible, are you mighty in your prayer? Are you mighty in your meekness? Are you mighty in your humiliation before your Lord and Master? And I don't mean humiliation like you're embarrassed. I mean humiliation as in your lowliness before the Lord. My, do you get rid of your pride? Are you low in that particular way? Look at verse 10. I want to show you what God's response was to such a re- response to him. Verse 10, when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. So such an amazing thing. The Lord sees them. They respond appropriately, right? They make themselves humble. They go down to the dust and they say, God, you won. And what does the Lord do? He pours out a perfect level of patience with them. Isn't that amazing? These are the people that are sworn enemies of God. I don't know if you remember in Exodus, uh, we were, went through that last year. When we were going through that book, it was the people of God that immediately turned away from God right after going through the Red Sea, right? They went through the Red Sea. God blessed them, completely removed their enemies. Remember, the Egyptians followed them through the divide, which that's amazing. Who, who runs after the people of Israel into the water? And then God closes the water on them. And then they worship the Lord. Then they go to Mount Sinai. And what do they do? They go, oh, let's go hear from God. While they're waiting, what do they do? They build a golden calf, chapter 32. Like, you guys couldn't have waited, like, three more chapters? Like, you got out of Egypt and you went right back to idols? And what does the Lord do? He says, I want to destroy these people and start over again. But they repented. And look at verse 34. How does the Lord, or sorry, Exodus chapter 34, verse 6, what does the Lord announce himself to the people? The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love, and faithfulness. Do you know our repentance tells the world of God's perfect patience? You know what makes us Christian? We repented. You know what makes us Christian more than that? Is God selected us. There's nothing in the world that will blow people away more than God's forgiveness for an entire life of rebelling against him. And just think about this. That's what Jonah should have been concerned with. Does Jonah know a forgiving God? Absolutely, he just got vomited on the shores of Israel. Why? Because a fish was going to kill him. And what did he do? He called out to God, remember me, remember me. And the Lord remembered him. And he was so excited to get back to Israel. And yet this is where he says he's in the place of the grace of God. That is how Jonah is known. And what is he doing right now? He's struggling with that. Now, this is an amazing part of the book. Can you imagine if Jonah chapter three was the end of the book? Jonah went to, to Nineveh. He preached the word. Everybody gave their heart to the Lord. Even the cattle had to suffer through the fasting, right? And so now the king's on the ground and everybody's going, God is good. If, he would just, if we would just repent, maybe he'll show compassion on us. And God showed them compassion. The end, the credits roll, and we all have a great Sunday and we had to crack a barrel. But that's not how the book ends, does it? I want to show you how Jonah makes it all about him. The Lord's doing amazing things. And just think about this. The Lord's doing amazing things and Jonah has a problem with it. Look at chapter four. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong. And he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord. Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? That is what I was trying to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you were gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love. Look, he's preaching to God. A God who relents from calamity. Now, Lord, Take away my life, for it is better for me to die than to live. And I love God's response. But the Lord replied, 
is it right for you to be angry? I think this is kind of amazing response to the Lord. Who talks to God like this, first of all? I see, I told you this is how it was going to go. Can you imagine talking to God like this? And God is true to his word. But what is God true to his word? God is pouring out the same amount of compassion on the Ninevites that he poured out on Jonah. And yet Jonah's in the position of saying, whoa, 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 you don't understand. My, my sin was like a tropical depression. Their sin was like a hurricane level five. So like, let's judge them a little bit differently, Lord. I would know I was in the belly of the whale and I was probably on my way to die because I refused to follow you in the right way. So I was rebellious too, but I was rebellious light. They're rebellious heavy. Can we judge them appropriately? It's kind of an amazing thing because the only reason that Jonah knew that God was gonna be true to his word because God was true to his word to him. If you are in a particular place where you are struggling to understand Maybe you feel like life is unfair. Maybe just a portion of life or just an area of life. God isn't coming like the way that you want him to come. Understand this, that your argument will never be with the Bible or even with the church or anything. But if you come to me and go like, I'm really mad at God, I'm like, well, you gotta go talk to God. Understand that the Lord already knows where you're at. Also understand that any grievance that you have comes out of your tiny ignorance. You are not an infinite God. You are a finite creature trying to explain to the creator of heaven and earth what would be better for you today. And the Lord's like, thank you, but no thank you. I don't need your help. I'll run the universe. I'll take it from here. Now look at this, verse five. Jonah continues to double down. I love it. Jonah had gone out and sat down at a place east of the city. And there he made himself a shelter and sat in the shade and waited to see what would happen to the city. Tell me if you think this is the most ridiculous, petty part of the Bible. Then the Lord, the Lord God provided a leafy plant and made it to grow up over Jonah and give him shade for his head to ease his discomfort. Notice it's all about Jonah's comfort. And Jonah was very happy about the plant. But at dawn the next day, God provided a worm, which chewed the plant so it withered. And when the sun rose, God provided a scorching east wind and the sun blazed it on Jonah's head so that he grew faint. And he wanted to die. And he said, it would be better for me to die than to live. But God had said to Jonah, is it right for you to be angry about the plant? It is, he said, and I'm so angry I wish I were dead. But the Lord said, you've been concerned about this plant, though you did not tend it or make it grow. It sprang up overnight and died overnight. And should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh? in which there are more than 120,000 people who cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. And that is the end of the book of Jonah. Is that not the most weirdest ending of any of the books of the Bible? Let's just be real. Like, I didn't write this. I'm reading this with you. But what's amazing about this book is that it is both miserable and wonderful at the same time. But I want to show you why it's wonderful, but I also want to show you why it's miserable. Jonah is a believer in God. We know that because he heard from God and he followed God's word. But Jonah is also a man whose life are full of idols. It's true. You can be a person who knows God. You can hear from God. But then you can also give a lot of rooms for personal idols that you have personally selected. And I don't want to just identify what an idol is for you because you're like, well, I don't bow before any statues at home. I don't worship any kind of like strange gods. But understand this, an idol is anything that is chief or supreme over God. If God tells you to go left and you're like, yeah, but this thing is telling me to go right, then that thing is your idol. How do I know? On Memorial Day, there are some of you that are great fishermen. The Lord tells you to be here in church 
And I know where you guys go when all those boat docks are full. Pastor Craig and I drive around and check the license plates to understand. No, I'm just kidding. I'm just totally messing. We don't do that. Pastor Ryan does, though. Um, But just understand this. If there is a particular part of your life that you will not let God rule, that particular thing, or even yourself, could be the idol. And I just want to remind you, this is the thing that uh, Jonah was struggling with in the belly of the whale. I'm going to put a Jonah 2.8 back on the screen. It says this. Those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. What Jonah was saying is, I was dealing with this. I made certain things my idol, even though I wasn't worshiping them like an idol. I was serving them like an idol. And there was parts of me that I put over you, God. And now that I'm down here, isolated, vulnerable in the bottom of the whale, you know what I'm finding out? I have a lot of idols, and you know what they turned out to be? Completely worthless. The only thing that is worthy of worshiping and worthy of serving is you. And that's why he's saying this. As I was tuning into my idols, I was tuning you out. That's a true thing. That's a true statement because you can see that Jonah is full of kind of bitterness and rage because he doesn't understand the compassion of the Lord that came to him. It's also the same compassion and grace of the Lord that's coming to all of us. And that's why we put that slide at the bottom. It says, being in tune with my personal idols gets me out of tune with God as my Lord. Do you know that if Lord is not center of your universe, your universe is out of whack. Everything starts to not make sense. Everything is not shifting into place. And the moment that you put Christ at the center of your life, the gravity of Christ brings everything into right orbit. Everything is everything in the right place. Why? Because there can only be one God. There can only be one creator and we can only work by his standard. And so I want you to see as he's being pulled out of the belly of the whale and put in this particular situation, he's a man that's marked by grace and now he has a problem with grace. Isn't that hypocritical? There's a few scholars that I've studied over the year that kind of identified the idols in Jonah's life And I've kind of made a small collection of the different versions that people have put together. But I just want to see if these personal idols resonate to you at all. Uh, Jonah had the idol of position. You know, uh, Jonah was a prophet for a while in Israel. And he was not a particularly good prophet because he's, uh, as far as track record, because he didn't have a great track record. And we're going to get into this with the king, Jeroboam, who failed in his kingdom. So he took that personally. But as a prophet, you have a prophecy that's kind of like your job, right? Why well, I'm a prophet, I give prophecy, and they come true. It's kind of what I do. It's what I'm known for around here. In 40 days, all of Assyria is going to be destroyed. Did that come true? No. Why? Because the compassion of the Lord superseded uh, the, the prophecy of Jonah, right? And so he's kind of losing out. But think about this. He doesn't want to be in the position of being the guy that, as a prophet to Israel, is being a prophet to Assyria, do you see how that can work? So I'm kind of in a, in a bad situation, which brings us to our second idol, political. You know how weird it is to be a prophet leaving Israel to head over to Nineveh? It'd be like being a guy in Ukraine right now. I mean, like, I just got a great word of the Lord. God's sending me to Putin and he's going to get saved. It's going to be great. He's going to go to church with us. Right now, that would be ridiculous. There would be a lot of political pressure on that person. And right now, Jonah is feeling himself to be more of a Jewish person than a child of God. Let me ask you this question right now. Politically, what's more important, your relationship to Jesus or your relationship to your political party? 100%, what comes first? I'm going to tell you what, in my kingdom, there's only one king. 
and his name is Jesus Christ. It doesn't mean that other things aren't important. What it means is, does my political alignment take precedence over my king? Next thing is racial. You know, uh, this is something that Jesus ran into a lot. It was so much nationalism that was rampant through uh, Israel at the time. Just think about this. Jesus, how dare you go to that Samaritan woman? She's a Gentile. Ah, oh, Jesus, she's right there by the well. Why are you talking to her? Pull up your robe and let's go. That's how bad the racism was in Israel. Did that stop God? Absolutely not. Aren't you glad that God doesn't draw these invisible lines in the sand that other people don't draw just so he could save you? He breaks through those lines to bring out the gospel. How about this? Self-righteousness. There was a self-righteousness to Jonah. I earned my place because I am the person that I am. Who is going to get to heaven and go, hey, by the way, let him know Joey's here. <laughs> Tell God I'll be ready to see him soon. There's not a single person in this world that will walk into heaven outside of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Understand that to be real. Understand how deep this grace goes. That every bit of sin that you have bore in this world was on you. And you were cursed. And Jesus went to the cross to become your curse. And Jesus said, I will not be able to do eternity with you unless we switch places. So Joey, give me your sinful robes and you take on my righteous robes. So that when I get to heaven, when you get to heaven and you stand before the Lord and anybody goes, why are you here? And go, I, I, didn't, I didn't earn this. But Jesus' blood said that I should be here. There is no self-righteousness. There is only God-righteousness. And so there was a lot of past personal hurts, too, for Jonah. As I was saying before, in 2 Kings chapter 14, he tried to bring King Jeroboam into good grace with the Lord, and he failed because Jeroboam was like, hey, it's kind of like a new method that we're going to do. We sin, we do whatever we want, we ask for forgiveness, God forgives you and then blesses you, and we just repeat the cycle over and over. And, you know, like Jonah was like, oh, my gosh, I failed as a prophet. And so he's like, if a Jewish king who knows God is going to fail, then how is a Ninevite king going to respond? All of this to say is he's building his calling and his identity on God on his past hurts. Is that a way to build your identity in Jesus Christ? Absolutely not. God has come to overcome the world and all of its failings, not to build upon them. And so there's a moment that we have an opportunity to, to make our identity, and we cannot build it on a falling and dying and sinful world. We must build it on the living God. And what he says we are is what we are. So what we're seeing is right now is Jonah is very much a self-serving believer. He was saying to the Lord, my pain is more important than your calling, Lord. My jealousy is more important than what you have for me. Uh, my need to be right is more important. My self-pity self, uh, self must rule over your calling because you know what? I would have to take my eyes off of me and look at you and that would make my pain less more important than you. And, and what he's really saying is I want to tune you out so I can tune my personal idols in because there's only one throne in my heart and I want my pain to rule. There's no way to go through life with the Lord. The Lord has come to overcome your failings. The Lord has come to overcome your, your mistakes, which is going to bring us to our next point. I want you to see this slide. Going through life with bitterness and unforgiveness is a strong indicator of just how out of tune with the grace of God you are. Going through life with bitterness and unforgiveness is a strong indicator of just how out of tune with God's grace you are. 
just think about this. Jonah is a prophet. Jonah grew up going to the temple. Jonah heard all the stories. How many times did Israel fail, have to be sent into exile, and be brought by the redemption back into the land? Was Israel perfect? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You know what Israel was supposed to be? In fact, the scripture says Israel is supposed to be a light into the world. Were they a light to the world? No, in fact, they actually ran to idols to the point that God had to break them by sending them into exile, so they had to call on God to come back to a direct relationship with God. Is that not something that Jonah should know? Would Jonah also know that he's the guy that ran from the Lord and had personal idols and was brought back by the grace of God, right? So how can we be a people, excluding Jonah, to say that our self-righteousness is ever going to be a place to judge somebody else's unrighteousness? Just think about that. How can your self-righteousness ever judge someone's unrighteousness? Think about how deep this runs. That there's a nation of people that had to be broken because they loved their idols more than they loved the God that saved them. It's an interesting thing. This is why repentance has to look like this. Repentance is not just saying sorry. It's a complete change of attitude towards our sin. We might not just run away from our sin. Like, I'm no longer doing that. I'm no longer going to sin. But we leave a gaping hole. Then what are we? We're people looking for righteousness. So we have to run from sin and run to righteousness. We can't just get rid of our idols because then what are we? We're people looking for something. There's always going to be a hole to fill in our heart. Something is going to have to rule. So we have to get rid of our idols and run to Jesus Christ. This is why we have to pull the full uno card. Remember reverse? Boom, reverse. I'm retreating from sin and all of its effects and running to God and all of his righteousness and his blessings. And what is happening right now is we have a man who is understanding God and listening to God, but is he operating God's blessings? Absolutely not. In fact, he's the most miserable person in this book. Just think about this. The sailors, right? Remember the sailors when they were on the ship? They did what God asked. They're like, let's get right with God. He's sending a storm. Let's get right with him. Uh, Jonah, we're going to try and save your life. And he's like, no, throw me overboard. So they did what he was asked to do. The storm. Hey, storm, go and capture Jonah. Yes, God, whatever you say, God. Hey, whale, there's this guy. You're going to try to commit suicide, throw himself over the boat. Swallow him up. Yes, sir. Aye, aye, Captain God. I'll do whatever you want. Ninevites. Did the Ninevites do what God asked? Basically, yeah, they turned from their sin and their evil ways and turned towards God. Who's the only person not doing what they're supposed to be doing in this book? Jonah, the believer. The believer is the only person that's not operating in the grace of the Lord, and he's the one that knows God the most. Is that not hypocritical? You know, Gandhi says it this way. You know, it's your Christ I really, really like. It's your Christians I can't stand. Is there a rampant issue in the modern church today of the people of grace not operating in the grace of God? 100%. And that's why we have to say this, tuning into God. Tuning in is turning back to God. The God of grace. The God of all redemption. And who are we to judge who is going to get redeemed and restored by the Lord? Who am I? I'm just as bad a sinner as anybody else. And I am only realizing this as, as I spend my time with the Lord. It's like, you know, you know, the more you don't know, the more you know, the more you realize you don't know. You know that statement? The more that I realize I know the grace of God, the more I don't realize how much he saved me from. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. Not, and the truth is, not one of us deserve the grace of God. And yet, how passionately did God pursue the Ninevites? 
very passionately. How passionately is he still pursuing Jonah? You see, there's a huge thing that Jonah is missing in the story. As much as God has been on mission for Nineveh, God has been on mission for Jonah. God has not given up on Jonah at all. Let's think about how amazing this particular thing is. Why does God put the people in our lives that he puts in our lives? Just think about this. Why do teenagers even exist? Like, why can't they just be cute little kids in elementary school that love crayons? Yes, Dad, you're the best, Dad. Why don't I skip over the angsty years and go right to being 25 years old and best friends? But you have to understand that maybe God puts the people that he puts in your life to reveal inside of you the places that you have not submitted to the Lord. Like that neighbor who parks in your grass even though you put reflectors up so that he doesn't park over there. Maybe there's a cry in your heart that you don't operate in the grace that God has afforded you, and that's God revealing to you is you've not been fully blessed. And if you're not fully receiving the grace of God, then you can't fully give the grace of God. And if you can't fully give the grace of God, you have to make this realization, I can't give what I don't have. But if God is freely giving the grace of God, then where does the problem lie? In me. In me. So if God's out here, like Sam's Club, giving out free samples of grace all day, every day, then what's the issue? Then it's my concept of releasing myself to what God's standard of grace and mercy actually is. Which means not about perfection, tuning back into God. It's not about perfection, it's about progress. It's about hearing God and learning God and listening to God. What if the Lord were to walk into this room right now and say to you, you and I need to have a real conversation. Will you, would you be willing to sit down and talk? That's why the cry of the brokenhearted person before the Lord has to say, Lord, please break my heart from what breaks yours. Just think of this. Jonah was so far from the Lord's heart. He wasn't far from the Lord's commands. He was far from the Lord's heart. Why? Because he was more interested in serving himself than serving the Lord who has constantly served him. Just think about this. There's a starting point that needs to take place and it needs to be this. If there is a perfect God that exists and he comes into your imperfect world, then it stands with reason that there would be no way that we could experience a God that's perfect without changing. If Jesus, as amazing as he is, shows up in your life, wouldn't the story automatically have to change? Especially if you are down in the dumps and dark and falling apart and far away from the grace and compassion of the Lord. The moment Jesus showed up in your heart, wouldn't things have to change? Wouldn't there have to be real progress? I want to show you what real progress looks like. There is a starting point, and it's in Scripture, and it comes from David, who was a man after God's own heart but wasn't living for the Lord. And this is the realization that he came to in Psalms 51, 17. He says this, My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. You, God, will not despise. Psalms 147.3, he says this, He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. A broken spirit is someone who has been devastated by the weight of their own sin, by the effects of their own sin. A contrite heart doesn't take forgiveness lightly, does it? How can you stand before the cross and look at the enormity of what it costs Jesus Christ to repair and restore and redeem your relationship with God and just say this, I, I'm okay on my own. 
In fact, you just think about this. When I look before the cross, if you look at it with deep reverence and awe, you would say, you know what? My biases and my judgments and my self-righteousness and everything else has no place here. The only thing that matters is how much God loves me and how much I love him. Because everything else is worthless. They're all worthless idols. You see, when we were caught up in our sin, we were enemies of God. When we were rebelling against God in our sin, in our selfishness, we stood before the Lord and said, my way is better than your way, so you're not king, I'm king. And so how does God treat his enemies? Romans 5.10. For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? It's kind of incredible to me that in this story, everybody gets it except for Jonah. And this is similarly what Jesus faced with the Pharisees, didn't he? We're great because we're awesome. That's what the Pharisees told, told Jesus. We don't need you. No, thank you. We're fine on our own. And Jesus is like, you're a whitewashed tomb. On the outside, you look great. On the inside, you're dead. There is no compassion or grace that is flowing from you. And that's what we see inside of Jonah, right? He's doing what the Lord asks, but there's none of that compassion and grace that is brought. He's an entitled favor that we think that we can operate in. But you know what? The reason why God needs a great heart to be so reduced to a contrite heart and a broken heart is because it will never mistake how much we've been forgiven. I've been united to Jesus Christ. I'm sorry, I've been united to God through Jesus Christ because God selected me. I didn't select him. It's because he reached down into the jaws of hell and ripped me out of the jaws of hell because he decided to love me, not because I decided to love him. And the only reason that I'm going to spend an eternity in heaven is because God has been so good to me. Some of you guys don't know this story, but I'll tell it one more time. UCF parking lot. I was hanging out with drug dealers. I was trying to kill myself slowly with drugs. I finally got an opportunity to do so. I overdosed. They left me in a parking lot. I begged for them to bring me to a hospital. And there, as I lay dying, I realized I didn't want to die. And the only reason that I'm sending you right now and standing before you is because I called out to God and said, God, please remember me. It's all been worthless. It's all been a failure. It's all been for naught. It's just been you. But if you could remember me, I'll be yours. 1 John 1, 9 says it this way. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Jonah chapter 2, Jonah said this, all salvation comes from God. God is so faithful to tune into us because he's right there. When does God forgive you? The moment you ask. How long does it take? Two weeks turnaround? Five business days? The moment you call out. Why? Because where is he at? He's passionately pursuing you all the time. Jesus Christ is the shepherd that left the 99 to go find the one. Why was that sheep caught up in the thicket in trouble, surrounded by the wolves of the world? Because the sheep wandered away, not because the shepherd did anything wrong. Right now, we should be a people that are marked with internal gratitude by the the God who has passionately pursued us in our failures and our mistakes and our rebellion and our compassion for people should be exploding from us because of God's compassion for us. Which is gonna bring us to our last slide. I want you to just look at this. Christ follower, we are living, walking advertisements to the goodness of God. Every day we should be celebrated from the depths from which God rescued us and now to the heights that he takes us. How many of you would have a different story if it was not for Jesus Christ? 
If Jesus Christ was in control of the pen of your life, how different would the story look to the world? And yet to the world, what we show them is the glory of God flows for those who are faithful and obedient to his word. Why? Because we tune back in. We're not perfect by any stretch of the imagination. But you know what we are? We are the people that are listening to God, hearing God, and doing what God says. And you know what's amazing? He pulls us into his glory. Isn't that an amazing trade-off? I trade hell for heaven. I trade unrighteousness for righteousness. I trade all the ugliness for the world for the beauty that is Jesus Christ. And why? Because he selected me. I did not select him. So what we're going to do now is we're going to take a moment and we're going to stop and we're going to pray. And um, I know I beat up on Jonah a lot. I just want to give you one little tidbit. Some scholars believe that Jonah, because the Taliban destroyed a, a tomb in Iraq and it was called Jonah's tomb. Now, some people believe that his heart did turn towards the Lord and he stayed and became an evangelist permanently to the people of Assyria for the rest of his days and died there. It's amazing to think about this. What is that equal for us? And like I said, we don't know if that's 100% true or not, but it equals this, that the glory of God is all that mattered to Jonah in the end. I know the story ends that way, and it should be an encouragement to us that our life doesn't end on a cliffhanger like that. Is it right for you to be angry? We're going to pray today three different prayers to stop running from God, to start following God, and then the last and final prayer. If you're in this room, and I just feel very strongly about this, if you're struggling with unforgiveness, then this is the day that you can give it to the Lord and operate in the forgiveness and compassion that he's poured into you and be free of that, no longer to be under that bondage of unforgiveness. So let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord, we just thank you so much that you thought enough of us to leave heaven and send your son, Jesus Christ, to die for us. Unlike Jonah, you were willing to pay the price. Unlike Jonah, Jesus, you were willing to suffer through our life and suffer our sin and become our curse. And the reason that I'm gonna be able to confidently stand before God and go to heaven is because your righteousness covered my sin. I didn't deserve that but yet here you are calling me by name, all of us by name. If there's people in this room that have been running from God, I ask for them right now to just call on God and say, Lord, I'm no longer gonna run. I hear your voice. I am yours and you are mine. I will, I will not run from the God that is passionately pursuing me. I'm gonna cling to you. I'm gonna encourage the people that have not been following God to follow. Lord, please encourage them, empower them. Give them the strength to follow you wherever you go. Your word is good. You are faithful and true. You never leave us or forsake us. If we call on you, you're right there. The Holy Spirit is operating in this room because you love the people and you love their hearts and you're working for their salvation. Let all of us that have been running to stop, turn, and face you, but also follow you. But finally, I just want to put this prayer out to our family. If there's anybody that's been operating in unforgiveness, today we understand that we are a people marked by grace. Lord Jesus Christ, if you could forgive us for a lifetime of rebellion and sin, then we can forgive others. Lord, if you could set us free from the bitterness and the poison of unforgiveness that's running through our system, Lord, then we would do this. Lord, we lay it at your feet. We cast our our cares and our burdens on you as if we are united in spirit to you. Unite us to our brothers and sisters. Do the work that the enemy would choose to destroy. 
Don't let there be disunity in this body. Don't let there be disunity in our hearts. Let us be the change that the world wants to see. Let us be a people filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with Jesus Christ. Let us be a people that are full of forgiveness because, Lord, we can only give forgiveness if we have forgiveness, and you have given us so much forgiveness on the cross. And so, Lord, forgive us for those words that we've said. Forgive us for the thoughts that we've had. Drive us closer to you, but, Lord, also bring our brothers and sisters close to each other. Lord, we love you and we thank you and we praise you. In Jesus' holy name, amen.